as you open the book of Acts to the opening chapter, and you don't, you don't need to turn there right now, but uh, when you open the book of Acts in chapter 1, you find Jesus, he's already been through his resurrection, he appears to his disciples a number of times, and as you open Acts 1, he's in his last appearance with the disciples. They know he's leaving, and they know he's returning, and so their big question in this moment is, when? When are you coming back? Seems like a fair question, seems like an obvious question, doesn't it? But in Acts 1-7, Jesus gives what is somewhat of a rough comeback. He says, you know, it's really not any of your business. Gee, Lord, I, I thought it would be my business to know when you're coming back. And he actually says, no, that's, that's my father's business. That's not your business to know the when. Your business is to go out into that, into that world and be my witness until I come back. And as he says that to them in that moment right there, and folks, I don't even know what adjectives we would use to describe this. If you're one of those men who has, has walked with Jesus for, for three years, you've been through highs and lows, you've, you've just been through the weekend of his, of his crucifixion and then his resurrection, and there's been several more appearances. I mean, what a three years it's been. And then right there in front of you, he begins to ascend up into heaven. And it says they stared and they stared and they stared until they couldn't see any longer. Now that part I understand. I, I can see you just staring, thinking, oh my gosh. And they stare so long and says, two guys appear, two angels. What are y'all staring at? What do you think I'm staring at? And they say, you know what? Just as you saw him ascend into heaven, you will see him descend again. Well, I just can't help but imagine that through the rest of their lives, as they were going through a, a normal day, as they were doing anything in, in, in their agenda, that any time the sky caught their eyes, don't you know they just had to look up and think, is this it? Today, maybe? And they would remember staring as they saw him leave. They'd be wondering, if I stare long enough, will I see him come back? That was 1,975 years ago. It's a long time. And now here we are, just like those guys, we're followers, we're disciples of Christ. And I don't know that the question has changed, has it? When? When are you coming back? Now we might add to that question, we might say, what's taking so long? Well, what are you waiting on? Well, folks, I'm not going to turn there today, but if you, if you did turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, you'd find a very specific, very definitive answer to that question. What's taking so long? What's he, what's he waiting on? Another question we might ask as we're trying to figure out what's going on during these 1975 years is, what's he doing up there? And that's the question I want to look at today as we conclude. Uh, this is our fourth message on what is God the Son. And, and we're going to conclude with this idea next week. We're going to move on in our 20 questions, our 20 what is questions. And we'll be looking at what is God the Holy Spirit. We're going to be taking that on for the next couple of, of weeks. But today, I want to look at what is Jesus doing up there? What's he been doing since he ascended into heaven? And I want to look at two things. Now, he's doing a whole lot more than two things. He's the head of the church. So everything that's involved with leading and guiding and bringing victory to the church, that, that's what he's doing. Jesus is the, the good shepherd. So I, I can turn to Psalm 23, and I see there a very definitive description of what a shepherd does for the sheep. 
And so I can look at all those and say, well, those are those are all things that Jesus is doing for me, doing for you as an individual. I can turn to a passage like John 15 and I see that, man, Jesus is my lifeline to a life that counts. John 15 says, I can't do anything not connected, not apart with Christ. Now, there's a lot of people who do stuff apart from Christ, but none of it counts. None, none of it's going to last. And so my lifeline to a life that counts, to a life that's going to last, is Christ. So there's a lot of things Christ is doing very necessary to my well-being as an individual, to our well-being as the church. But I only want to look at two things. You say, well, how did you pick two things? Well, they're, they're two of my favorite things. I don't, if you're looking for a better answer than that, you'll have to give me more time. But that's, that's the two things I'm going to talk about. Two of the favorite things that I see Jesus doing, that he's doing for me right here, right now. Jesus is defending me and Jesus is praying for me. Would you turn with me this morning and look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we've got some in the, the chairs in front of you, around you. Hope you'll grab one or have somebody hand it to you and study along with us. You'll find Romans right after the, if you get to the beginning of the New Testament, go through the Gospels, Acts, then there's Romans. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to begin reading in verse 31. Romans 8, verse 31. Says there, what then are we to say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare, he did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for all of us. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. You know, I like the opening thought here in this verse that God is for us. You know, I think sometimes we get stuck in kind of a, a harsh and a negative view of God. We think, well, you know, what is God doing? Well, he's waiting till you have fun so he can come down and stop it. What is God doing up there? He's just waiting till you make a mistake and then wham, he brings down the thunderbolt. You know, we get this view that God's just up there to get us. And listen to this sweet, simple declaration of Scripture. God is for us. If you're a child of God, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God's for you. He's on your team. He is for all that is good in your life. We might say, well, how do I know? And we wouldn't say that to God, would we? We'd be a little bit scared. But we, we're thinking it. How, how do I know God is for me? Well, folks, when it comes to your physical, your spiritual, your eternal well-being, God did not consider his own son. That's what it says here. God did not consider his own son too high a price to provide for you. Now, shouldn't we consider that pretty good evidence? Could I even go a little further and say, shouldn't we consider that enough? I mean, I believe God does many more things for us. But if God never does another thing to show he's for me, is there anything more than giving his own son? God is for us. 
And there's some wonderful benefits, some wonderful ramifications of that. Romans chapter 8 has a lot of that in that. By the way, Romans chapter 8, my favorite chapter of the Bible. That's my favorite one of the whole Bible. A lot of chapters in the Bible, this is my favorite one. I think it's incredible. You ever heard a doctor say, uh, take two aspirin and call me in the morning? If you come to me with a spiritual problem, I'll say, read Romans chapter 8 once a day for 30 days and then call me at the end of that. I, 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 I believe this, this chapter can set you right emotionally, mentally, and physically if you read it and read it and read it, pray over it and get it into your heart and life. The truths in Romans chapter 8 are incredible. The, the main truth being communicated in Romans 8 is that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. So I've got this God who is for me. I've got this God who has surrounded me with his love and there's nothing that's going to separate me from that. Man, this is just kind of becoming a big, warm, fuzzy, huggy moment, isn't it? You know, big group hug. It's wonderful. This is, this is what we want in life. I want, I want love. I want security. And yet, with as incredible as this is, there would be those in this room who would actually hold all of that at an arm's distance. You know, I want to be loved. I want somebody to be on my side. But you know what we're a little bit afraid of is rejection. And if you had found out what I had done or what I had been, if you, if you knew what was in my mind, well, you, you, you'd reject me. You, you wouldn't like me. I think we can even treat God that way. I'm nervous if God, if God finds out. Boy, if God saw that, and, and, and I don't want to be rejected, I hate being rejected, and so as much as I want to be a part of the big group hug, I'm, I'm just holding it at bay a little bit. Because somebody might condemn me, somebody might accuse me, and, and then y'all wouldn't like me. But that's what this passage is dealing with, isn't it? Who, who can condemn me? Who can accuse me? And the implied answer is nobody. But, but you and I hear that question, who can accuse us, who can condemn us? And what we're thinking, well, there's a whole lot of people that could, could accuse me or condemn me. I mean, there really is a lot of people who could uh, spill the beans on you, aren't there? Let's think about a list. Not, not particularly your list, don't get nervous. But think of the people who can spill the beans on us. I mean, there's our family and friends. That's an awful thought, isn't it? It happens, doesn't it? I mean, they're the ones who know the juiciest details of our life and Sometimes they tell somebody. And it, and it ends up getting us in a bad light. It ends up putting us in a, in a bad position. Maybe, maybe they don't do it on purpose. Maybe they just they think they can trust this person. They, you know, they accidentally let this out, and then all of a sudden, there, there, there it goes. It shouldn't happen. It's awful to think about it happening, but our, our family and friends can accuse us, can condemn us. Then, of course, there's our enemies. We've got, we got enemies, right? I mean, I hope you don't have many, but... We probably have all had in our lives at least one person who thought, you know, the entire world would be better if we never existed. You know what I'm talking about? They see you as in the way of what they want, what they're trying to accomplish, what they're trying to get in life. And so obviously an enemy is always looking for an opportunity that casts a bad light on you. Whether it's a lie, an exaggeration, or the truth, they're looking to have people look bad at you. And then, of course, there's the one who inspires all this activity of rejection and accusation and condemnation, and that's Satan. Satan is the accuser. Revelation 12.10 says that Satan is before God day and night. That's a lot, isn't it? Satan is before God day and night accusing you. 
I mean, our topic this morning is talking about what's Jesus doing right now. I can tell you what Satan is doing right now. He's standing before God trying to accuse you. Trying to show how unworthy, how unright it is that you're called a child of God. So he's accusing. Think about how this picture looks. Satan's over here. And he dangles this temptation in front of us. I'm telling you, I'm telling you it's going to work. You need to get angry. You need to get even. I, I tell you what you need. You need to lie right here. You better lie. Hey, pornography works. You tried that. Hey, you need to lie. You need to cheat. Cheat. Hey, you don't ever forgive that person. You need to hate that person. And he dangles these things out in front of us. And you know what we do? I mean, periodically, we reach up and we grab a hold of one. And as soon as we're hooked, you know what Satan does? Straight away to heaven. Hey, God, you see that? See what I told you? See what I mean? You think, well, that, that's not very fair. Well, you know, hey, newsflash here. Satan's not fair. That's exactly what he's doing. He's a destroyer. He wants to destroy your life. So he'll destroy it with sin. And then to make sure eternity's taken care of, go over here and point it out to the Father. Satan's an accuser. He wants to condemn you. He wants to accuse you. Now, here's one that seems kind of strange to add to the list till you think about the logic of it. Can't God accuse us? Can't God condemn us? I mean, who knows, who knows more about us than God? He knows everything. He's been, he is everywhere. He not only knows the things we've done, which there might be one or two other people that know, he also knows all the stuff that's going on inside that maybe nobody else knows. Isn't it kind of funny we think about God hoping he doesn't find out? Hoping he didn't see, hoping stuff, you know, on the other side of the universe was pretty busy today. I mean, I think, I think we all know that's probably not real, but I think we actually think that way sometimes. Folks, nobody's letting God in on anything. Nobody's going to tell God something that, oh, really, I didn't know Randy did that. Well, you're right. No, there's nobody that's going to accuse you before God on something he doesn't already know. He knows. As a matter of fact, God knows more about what a mess you've made of your life than even you do. He knows. But look what happens here in Romans 8.34. Now, we, got, we, start, we start to tie in what we looked at last week with the death and resurrection of Jesus. I am protected, folks. I am protected. Can somebody accuse me? Can somebody condemn me? The answer in this passage is absolutely not. We ask the question, how? Well, here's how. As a follower of Christ, as a child of God, I am protected against all accusation, against all condemnation from the death of Christ, which is a propitiation. Remember that word from last week? Is a satisfactory payment for my sins. I'm protected by his death. I am protected by his resurrection. That's proof of my justification. Proof of the legal right to declare me righteous. I am protected by his ascension. He is at the right hand of God. Jesus is at the right hand of God for you. He's there interceding for you, defending you. And I am protected as a follower of Christ, as a child of God, by his intercession. Jesus is there praying for me. Is this not incredible? What, what is Jesus doing right now? He is defending you against any accusation that somebody might bring. I have an advocate. I have a defense lawyer 24-7 there on my behalf. 
Listen to this. You may want to turn there. 1 John chapter 2. Another great passage. You want to look for 1 John. Go to the end. Revelation. And go back a few books. And they're little tiny books right before Revelation. Jude. 3 John. 2 John. 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. Look at verse 1. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. My little children... I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. Can I just stop there for a moment? Because this is really is not part of the theme of the message. It's something we need to hear, isn't it? There is still sin, right? You know, we certainly live in a culture that is rapidly moving toward an area where really nothing's wrong. Not if it works for you. Nothing's wrong. And folks, I'm, not, I'm afraid sometimes we're not really any different in the Christian church. There's very little we say is wrong anymore. Folks, there's still sin. And the goal is still to not sin. It's still a sin to lie. That's a sin. It's still a sin to cheat. It's still a sin to have any kind of sexual relationship outside of a marriage. It's still a sin to live together. I find in the church that's really absolutely news today. To live together outside of marriage. Who knew that was wrong? Well, the Bible said it all along. Now, those are kind of the big ones. But you know what? It's still sin to worry. It's still sin to be anxious. It's still sin to be bitter. It's still sin to forgive. John says, I've written these things so that you will not sin. Sin is a destroyer. Sin is destructive in your life, in your family. It's destructive in a whole culture and a nation. You know, we hear something like that and Every now and then we do kind of remember, man, I, am, I have sinned. I have made a mess of things. And we start, we start weighing that on us and we can feel guilty. And guilt's not a very good motivator. It just makes us feel bad. Don't sin. Look at verse 2. But if anyone does sin. Now what's about to happen is not a parachute to go ahead and jump into sin because you're covered. Hear the command. Don't sin. But if you do, I don't want you getting swallowed up in guilt. I don't want you getting eaten up on what a mess you've made of things. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation. Aren't you glad you learned that word last week? Propitiation. Go to work this week and say, I tell you what, if anybody can spell that, you get $10. And then you'll give yourself the $10. He himself is the propitiation, the satisfactory payment for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. I have a defense lawyer. I have a judge. I have an advocate before God 24-7. What an incredible thing, but it gets better than that. And I don't want anybody to hear this, okay? My defense lawyer, he's the judge's son. Don't tell anybody. And the father, the judge, loves his son. He trusts his son. He believes everything the son says because he knows his son is true. And folks, that is who is standing at the judge for you. He's there on your benefit, on your behalf. You remember last week we talked about being in the courtroom of God. And I'm standing there and at that moment... When I place my faith and trust in the work of Christ for me on the cross, I place my faith in his blood. At that moment, I am declared righteous. Remember last week we talked about that being a legal thing. 
When I go to get heaven, my standing before God is not based on who's in line in front of me or what kind of mood God is in or what my last day on earth was like. No, it is all a legal issue and it's been established by the work of Christ. So I stand there, I am declared in right standing with God, I am made a child of God. Now I leave the courtroom and I go back out into the world to live. But as I go back out in the world to live, guess who comes running into the courtroom? Satan and anybody else he can get. I can't believe you're letting him off the hook. You do realize he did this and he did this and he did this and he did this and he did this. And Jesus is standing there for me and saying, I paid for it. I paid for it. I paid for it. It's covered. It's covered. It's covered. This is all taken care of legally. I've got it covered, judge. It's a legal thing, not an emotional thing. It's not a hope thing. It's covered by the work of Christ. Is that phenomenal? A little bit. Come on, folks. You've got somebody standing there for you. Nobody's going to say anything to God that Jesus has not covered on your behalf. I think when you really start to imagine that and try to think about him up there doing that and all that could be said about you. I mean, here comes Satan and everything he's going to say. He's going to lie. He's going to exaggerate. And let's be honest, Satan can just tell the truth there because the truth will condemn us, won't it? Why does Jesus do that? I mean, I'm glad he does. Don't get me wrong. Why would he do that for me? Well, folks, I go back to our, our study of the attributes of God. God is what he is, and he loves to display what he is. And he is a God of forgiveness and a God of love and a God of mercy. And so when he displays all these attributes, he's showing who he is. Our being able to stand there is not because of how good we are. It's because of how good God is. Why does he do this? To display who and what he is. But now remember, he, he's also a God of justice. He's a God of holiness. He's a God of wrath. And it's Jesus who took on all of the payment for that, who absorbed all of that attribute of God so that I could absorb the forgiveness, love, and mercy of God. That's a lot to get our arms around, isn't it? Why God would do this for us. Now, whether we can get our arms around it or not here today, I tell you one thing we really should try to get a hold of is what should my response be to what Jesus is there doing for me all the time? You know, if I if I had a, a lawyer who just lived, I mean, he just camped out, set up his home his whole life was to live at the courthouse and just make sure my life's covered. Uh, taxes, property, any other issues, a will, just anything legal in my life. He just lives down there, make sure I'm in good standing. Make sure it's always covered. He doesn't even call me to come and fix it. He just takes care of it himself. Man, if you had a lawyer like that, I mean, you can't, you can't pay for it. You know what lawyers make an hour? And I'm not talking about, you know, two or three hours a day. 24-7 he's down at the courthouse covering me. I can't pay for that. But I tell you what, I'd sure be appreciative, wouldn't you? I'd probably give him a gift every now and then. I'd probably want to tell people about this lawyer that I have. I'd certainly want to please him. I'd certainly want to know how much I appreciate him. Wait a minute, I said if I had a lawyer. There's no if to it. I do have a lawyer. At the most important courtroom in the universe. Constantly there, making sure I'm covered and that I'm not getting in any legal standing that's going to get me in trouble eternally. Constantly watching over, over every issue in my life. He's there defending me. Should I do any less for him than I would do for an earthly lawyer that would do the same? 
Would I not give him gifts? Would I not give him thanks? Would I not want to show appreciation? Would I not want to live to please him? Would I not want to tell others about this incredible lawyer that I have? You know, I guess one other response we might have when we understand this. I guess we should have a goal that he has to defend less and less every week. I, I want my goal this week is that Jesus would have to defend less about the life of Randy Hahn than he had to defend last week. And my goal for 2010 is that he will have to defend less in that year than he had to defend in 2009. I mean, I'm grateful I've got somebody to cover my sin. That gratefulness shouldn't lead me to say, well, gosh, sin doesn't matter. I'm covered. No, I, w- I want to sin less and less. I want him to have to defend less and less. So what's Jesus doing right now? He's standing before God the Father, the judge of the universe, making sure I'm covered. All accusations and condemnations taken care of. There's a second thing Jesus is doing, that is he's praying for me. It says here at the end of Romans 8, 34, that he stands there to intercede. That word intercede is synonymous with praying. He's standing there praying on my behalf. There's another great passage, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It says, and we can be saved by coming to God through him since, look at this, since he always lives. Look at those two words. Jesus always, how often is he praying about me? Always. And look at this, he lives. Jesus lives to stand at the right hand of God on my behalf. And intercede for me. And pray for me. Here again folks. What a phenomenal thought. You know if you come and. If you come and ask me to pray for you. I I will do that. I I consider it both an obligation and a privilege. I I will pray for you. I think I'm pretty good at praying. I I don't don't know what the scale is. But I I think I do all right at it. I'm very faithful to it. uh, You ask. I'm going to pray. But you know when I pray for you. I'm very limited. See, I don't know you perfectly. I don't know God perfectly. I don't know the situation perfectly. Now, pray, but boy, it's with a lot of not understanding that I pray. But when Jesus prays, watch this. He knows the Father perfectly. He knows me perfectly. He knows the Father's plan for me perfectly. He knows where I am in that plan perfectly. He knows as that plan unfolds where it's hitting me, good, bad, strong, weakness. He knows everything that's going on in my life in relation to that plan. And it's with all that perfect knowledge that he then goes before the Father and he prays. He intercedes on my behalf. And folks, that's somebody you want praying for you. I mean, that word, I'd like to hear it, wouldn't you? I wonder what he's praying about. You know, it made me wonder, I was thinking through this, and I, and I was thinking about, I, I did that, Jesus, what are you praying for me about? And I thought, I wonder if the Father ever says no. I thought, well, you know, he has said no at least once. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? You think all things being equal, Dad, I'd like not to do the whole cross thing. If there's another way to save these people, could we, could we discuss that? But I want your will. What did the Father say? the cross is how we're going to do this remember god is for you so when he says no and i'm not saying you'll have any ability to understand this 
But when he says no, it's because yes is not the very best. See, when he's for you, he's not going to settle for okay. He's not going to settle, well, that'll get us through this. God only wants the very best. God will only do the very best. And sometimes, while we may never be able to fathom them, the very best is going to be to say no right here. Jesus is praying for you right now. You've shared prayer requests in Bible fellowship. Maybe you've told somebody else out in the concourse, we'll pray for you. We are to pray for one another. But folks, what an awesome thought. Jesus is praying for me right now. What is he doing? He's standing there in heaven defending me. He is praying for me. Now, one other quick issue we need to deal with. Because it's going on in this room right now. We hear this and we believe this. It kind of even feels good to think about it. But at one point in our life, we may all have said this. Some are saying it right now. It doesn't feel like it. I I believe you, Pastor. I trust you, Pastor. I trust God's word. It says he's praying for me. It says he's defending me. But it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like I have him doing that for me. I'm whispering because we really wouldn't say that out loud, would we? Why? Why Why would that be the case? Why can I have the Son of God doing these things for me and go through a day, a week, maybe an entire season of life and never be able to tell that that is happening? As a matter of fact, there's a bigger question here. Why don't we experience, as a follower... As a child of God, why don't we experience his blessings at times? I mean, the Bible says that God's always with me. Do I always sense his presence? No, I don't. The the Bible says God's always guiding me. Do I always sense his guidance? No, I don't. So why is the Bible saying these things are always? Did you see that word in Hebrews 7.25? He is always praying for me. If that is always the truth, then why can I go through periods of time and not sense that at all, not experience that at all? I think there could be a couple of reasons. I want to just hit one very significant reason today. Sin. Sin. The sin of not believing, a lack of faith, the sin of disobedience, the sin of not walking with Christ. Sin is going to keep me from experiencing, seeing what God is doing. It's not that I sinned so God stopped doing it. I sinned, so Jesus just stopped praying. No, he's still praying. He's still there. He's still blessing. But sin has short-circuited my ability to see it. My ability to perceive it. My ability to understand it. Folks, we said it last week. Sin is always going to get in the way of what is good. Isn't Satan tricky? Because most of the time when we sin, we think that is the absolute path. To what is good. Even if we know it's sin. I'm going to ignore God in this moment. Because I am so sure. This is what's going to lead to what is good in my life. Never. Will it lead to what is good. Because sin is a destroyer. And the one who tempts us with it. Is a destroyer. And as soon as he hooks you with it. He's going to run straight away to God. And show how worthless you are in that sin. This is awful. This isn't fair. This is too much. Sure is. That's why I'm so grateful that Jesus is always praying for me.
that Jesus is always defending me. Let's pray. Father, what incredible truths you've put into our lap today. Maybe some of us knew this. Maybe we hadn't thought about it in a while. Father, I'm pretty sure that most of us don't think about this enough. We don't realize it enough. Father, would you give us the courage and the faith to hold on to these truths and know I never enter a situation alone. Jesus is always there praying and defending, making sure I'm covered, making sure that the Father's plan is unfolding rightly in my life, helping me to live and to walk in that plan. You are doing so much. You are so much. Oh, God, why do I choose sin? Why do I choose to lie? Why do I choose to be mean? Why do I choose to be angry? Why do I choose to be bitter? Why do I do that? Now, just stop and think. It's never, ever provided peace or happiness or security or what I want in life. Jesus, I thank you for understanding that. And I thank you for being there before the Father, praying for me and defending me. I'm not going to ask you to pray less. I hope you pray more this week than you did last week. but, But I sure do pray you have less to defend this week than you did last week. I want to live like I have the Son of God doing these wonderful things in my life. I want it to be evident in my relationships, my conversations, my words, my actions, in everything that I do, that God is for me. That Jesus is praying for me and defending me. God, I pray that's more clear this week than it's ever been. You are so worthy. It's in Jesus' name I ask this. Amen.